Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm talking to Martin Hollywell, who is a professor of history at the University of Leicester. He has authored and edited 14 books, um, including most recently the one we're talking about today, American Health Crisis, 100 Years of Panic, Planning, and Politics, which was just published by the University of California Press. Martin, welcome to the show. Hi, Claire. Thanks so much for having me on. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Of course, yeah. You'll 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 recognize from my voice that that I'm British. Um, was educated in uh, the Midlands in the, in the UK. I spent some of my childhood in Seattle, uh, where my father was seconded with his work uh, as an aeronautical engineer. Um, so I guess my interest in American studies started from an early age. Although I didn't do American studies until my PhD. Uh, Nottingham, University of Nottingham. Uh, my first degree was in English and my MA is in critical theory at the University of Exeter. Um, and I, I wanted to mention a couple of people who really inspired me to continue to to work in an interdisciplinary way, but also really set up, I suppose, my intellectual horizons. Uh, the first at Exeter uh, was uh, Michael Wood, who, who moved to Princeton. He's emeritus professor at Princeton. Um, and he was always um, very sharp on thinking about the texture of language and the way that literary representations can often probe further than um, often sociological accounts can do. Um, so although my work is largely now in cultural and intellectual history, I still use and uh, try and weave um, that kind of work, uh, that kind of literary work and attention to language into into my historical projects. Um, my master's dissertation became the, the basis of my fourth book, Images of Idiocy, which came out in 2004, uh, which is a much more literary take on the medical humanities than uh, this current book. Um, but you'll see um, that there are elements of, of that 
attention to the, the texture of language and the idea that we can often probe further through cultural representations. Just, just a word about um, my move into intellectual history, um, University of Nottingham, my project, uh, which became my first monograph, Romantic Science and the Experience of Self, uh, which came out in 1999, was an attempt to construct uh, a transatlantic counter-tradition, um, which tried to counter normal science by um, bringing imaginative and creative subjects into dialogue with more empirical ones. I start with William James at the end of the 19th century and chart um, the course through a series of figures, some of them neo-Freudians like Otto Rank and Eric Erickson, and through to Oliver Sacks, um, who I interviewed as a graduate student in, in the mid-90s in Manhattan, and who I've, like William James, I've come back to as a as a touchstone through through my later work. My, my mentor was one of my PhD supervisors, Richard King, um, who grew up in Tennessee, was educated at UNC and the University of Virginia. And Richard's really important because um, although he's best known for his work on the Southern Renaissance and uh, on civil rights, his first book called uh, Party of Eros that came out in 1970 was very much thinking about the role of neo-Freudian critics in culture and in social thought at large, so stepping out of the, the clinic or the, uh, the institution to think about how ideas take shape in the public sphere. Um, Richard's a really important intellectual figure um, in American studies at large, particularly, particularly in the UK, and I often use him as a, as a reader and as a, a sounding board I guess the last thing that's worth saying in terms of biography is I've worked with and really valued working with historians of different shapes and sizes um, at the University of Leicester, particularly in the Centre for American Studies. Um, and I found the archive, not that I wasn't using archives as a graduate student, but I really found the archive increasingly important in my work, uh, starting in, in 2004-05 when I was working on um, what became my fifth book on Reinhold Niebuhr, a theologian and social critic whose archive at the Library of Congress is extensive. And I really are passionate about trying to bring archival work into dialogue with other forms of public discourse and public documents. Um, and I don't think, had I not worked closely with different kinds of historians, um, I would moved in that direction, um, despite the fact that I'm interested in the layering of discourses. I really think that the, my archival work has grown considerably over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Well, the evidence base uh, for American health crisis is particularly rich. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. Um, did you write the whole thing in quarantine? No, I started writing it in 2015-16, so it took a, a long, a longish time. Um, how I came to write it, I, I'm, I'm working, um, and I can go back and, and talk to you a little more about this later, uh, on a trilogy of books for Rutgers University Press. Uh, the first two volumes came out in 2013 as Therapeutic Revolutions and 2017 as Voices of Mental Health. Uh, the third book in that trilogy I'm I'm working on now 
and I wasn't really ready to to do that um, in the la- over the last few years. Uh, but one of the reasons I wanted to look at a longer time period um, was that those volumes looking at 25 to 30 year uh, slices of history. So therapeutic revolutions looks at discourses of therapy um, and the way that they oscillate between um, ideas around authority and liberation in the post-war years. So from Truman to, to Nixon, if you want to give it a federal cast. Whereas Voices of Mental Health looks at the politicization of mental health in the 1970s and beyond, uh, focusing on the, the Nixon to Clinton period. I really wasn't ready to write the, the most recent installment of that at the time. Plus, I was, although I was using quarter or third century slices of history um, strategically in those books, uh, I wanted to look at a broader um a broader expanse or horizon of history, but but thinking about public health and the way that's often framed as a crisis more broadly. Um, so mental health is a, an important aspect of the book, particularly uh, the fifth chapter on care, uh, but it goes well beyond that, that frame. Um, I also had done some of the archive work for this book um, in, in those books on mental health, so I spent quite a lot of time particularly in the Clinton and uh, Carter presidential libraries in Little Rock and Atlanta. Um, So I took the opportunity with this to go back and look at the the pre-war period. Uh, I spent quite a lot of time on the the Hoover and FDR libraries uh, within the National Archive System, but also uh, the Woodrow Wilson uh, Library, uh, which which is, is, is a private one. So I'd, I'd done a lot of the post-war archive work prior to this, um, and this book, because it starts in the 1910s with the Wilson administration, gave me the opportunity to think about the evolution of the public health service um, in, in those really important um, war and, pre- uh, and interwar years. Well, the, the scope of the book is impressive. The evidence base is rich. Um, you say at the beginning that you sort of didn't set out to replicate a a history of medicine. Like I, I believe you used the example of um, John Burnham's healthcare in America, that this book is doing something else. Um, Tell us a little bit about um, what you've tried to achieve with this hundred year history. Sure. Well, I first started thinking about writing, a, I suppose, an institutional um, history of federal responses to health crises, starting in the, the, the 1910s and writing it in a chronological sequence um, and using the Wilson and Trump administrations at the bookends. And in, in some ways, they are. The, um, uh, the introduction focuses on 1918 and uh, the conclusion um, on 20, um, 2018, um, not just the opioid crisis, which is an important case study, the last one in the book, uh, but I suppose the transition from Obama to Trump, where you have two very ideologically distinct notions of what health is, um, obviously in policy terms much sharper in the Obama administration, but that divergence or that polarity is really uh, sharp in, in, in recent years. Uh, but I decided to move away from writing it chronologically. Um, I think it's been done before. Um, and also, 
when I was thinking about grouping health crises, they are more, more interesting, I think, to group by theme or by concept uh, rather than moving through a chronological sequence, particularly as there are historical parallels and echoes and resonances which are easier to tease out in that kind of thematic grouping. I was also interested in um, what a crisis is, uh, so the reality of a crisis, uh, particularly uh, those that impact on communities, whether those are defined within a uh, within a city or within a within a region or state, um, but also the rhetorical construction of crisis as well, and the way that it's uh, used often quite anecdotally or casually or colloquially in uh, discourse, uh, but sometimes takes on more clarity and uh, and shape um, when it's uh, linked or um, when it connects to, to to that lived experience of an uncomfortable, sometimes life-threatening um, emergency uh, that arises sometimes at national level, as we've seen um, a number of times, sometimes internationally with COVID, and sometimes quite locally. Uh, so one of the case studies, for example, in the first chapter looks at the Buffalo Creek flood, uh, which happened in the early 1970s in um, a poor mining um, region of West Virginia um, didn't have the kind of um, national uh, coverage or being brought into the national conversation in the way that Katrina or Harvey or Maria does, but is really is as important for thinking about how a health crisis happens, but also how it's constructed both at the time um, and also sometimes retrospectively as well. Let's talk a bit about that. So what? how do you define a health crisis? How is it constructed? And then what are the six crisis concepts that um, the, the thematic chapters that the book covers? Sure. Um, so it's called American Health Crisis. So you could ask why crisis singularly rather than mm-hmm. multiply uh, mul- uh, on, on a multiple level. Well, I think the language of crisis is um, continuous through the hundred years that I look at, so the 20th century and early 21st, and across changing media as well, um, suggesting that it isn't just something that happens in exceptional phases, but part of the the fabric of um, American life obviously goes beyond that as well. But I was mindful of what Naomi Klein said in 2017 when she describes Ours is an age when it has become impossible to pry one crisis apart from all the others. They have all merged, reinforcing and deepening each other. Um, Interestingly, Klein was talking at a a Labour Party uh, conference in the UK in 2017. And obviously she's thinking from both an activist perspective, but also her work in environmentalism as well. Um, but I think she's right, and not just for, for the present moment, that the entangling of discourses and um, and realities and also senses of scale uh, is something that I can see uh, through the period that I'm looking at. Um, the six modes or themes that the chapters focus on um, start with... Um, uh, what I call disaster, although it's looking at floods, particularly floods in, in the south. And I've given one example of that with the Buffalo Creek flood. 
Uh, I look at poverty and I look at the environment more broadly, both in terms of pollution, but also climate change and its effect on uh, both human and, and, and animal health. Um, in the second part of the book, I look at uh, three other um, crises, um, those that are stimulated by the spread of viruses, particularly epi epidemics and pandemics. I think about care, so more institutionalized ideas of healthcare and the crisis, particularly dealing with mental health, but also other other forms of um, health conditions that are are tricky to get right in terms of providing care, which is both uh, protective, but also allows um, the individual or the group to have, have some form of agency. And then the last chapter, I look at drugs, um, starting with, um, which actually starts in the introduction, where I look at the, um, the concern of the Wilson administration in trying to spread the illicit um, use and distribution of opiates in the, in the, in the 1910s um, through to the present moment with the opioid crisis, but also filtering that back through um, discussion of, um, of, of heroin and methadone in, in the 1970s and concerns about uh, Valium addiction in, in the 1970s. So looking at the, I suppose, the fulcrum between licit and illicit um, distribution and use of, of drugs. So those are the six crises concepts. And I was interested in crises that could also be seen on a newspaper headline or on the news, or the front page of a, of, of a newspaper, because I'm particularly interested in the way that um, a crisis concept travels or is communicated. Um, so the role of the media, both in terms of reporting, but also framing uh, stories is really important for thinking both about how a crisis comes to be rhetorically, uh, but also the channels by which it spreads. And each of the crises, to me, it seemed, reading the book, um, each of the crises seemed cyclical. In other words, um, uh, as a reader, I walked away from this book thinking, wow, public health in the United States has been perpetually in crisis in all of these different ways for the past century or so. Sure. I, I would say that, although I, don't, I didn't want to create, I didn't want to write a book that was heavily skewed to either um, a damning critique of government failure, nor, nor simply a celebration of the resilience of communities. That's a really important part of the book, and we can come on to discuss that, that later, but to try and find a middle ground conceptually, but also tonally to both uh, offer a, a description of, of, of crises, some of which are well known, others less so, but also the interconnections between them. Um, but I wouldn't disagree with you, Claire, on, on that. I thought the book did that brilliantly um, in, in terms of finding a middle ground. And I'd like to talk a little bit about um, how your argument is, is in conversation with the work of Robert Bella. So Robert Bella, for our listeners, is a sociologist of religion. I read quite a bit of his work in graduate school because I took a handful of courses in the religion department in addition to my home department. But he's not someone that you often see um, so prominently featured in history of medicine books. And this book uh, 
American health crisis quotes Charles Rosenberg at the end, but it's really built on um, some of the ideas of, of Robert Bella. And so I wondered if you could say just a little bit about him and how his work served as a source of, of inspiration um, for your argument. Sure. Um, I mean, interestingly, when I refer to Robert Bella, it's important to realize he worked collaboratively. So he was writing essays from the late 60s through to um, late in his career, uh, very early in, in, in this um, uh, in, in this century. Um, he wasn't a policy advisor, although he was close to the, the Clinton administration. Um, and although his background is Episcopalian and that in, informs his view of social justice, I think he's a, a really helpful figure for thinking um, both about the here and now, so about civic life and community, uh, but also beyond the here and now as well, the importance of belief, uh, whether that's uh, in orthodox terms or just a, a notion of, of something that is um beyond the empirical realm. I mentioned earlier with my, my PhD work, uh, thinking about uh, William James's notion of radically empiri- the radically empirical, so that which we can't uh, explain uh, without viewing it as something that's like, something we can see or touch or feel. Um, so those aspects, whether they're, they're spiritual or imaginative um, in our lives, we need to try and think about as being part of um, something that is like uh, the more more sensual realm or the empirical realm. I think Bella, like other figures I've looked at, Reinhold Niebuhr being one, allows to navigate that between the more ephemeral or, um, or, or less easy to pin down aspects of our lives and those which are much more easy to, to document and, and to view. I'm not really interested in him as a religious thinker per se, although he does have this notion of civil religion, uh, thinking about communities within um, civic life. Um, and there's a reflection there, I think, of what it means to be part of a, a community of faith. The one thing that Bella does allow me to do, though, is, is he allows me to thread the needle between uh, two types of discourses, um, ethical discourses, one which we'd I suppose would call moralism, which is more about judgment. So when it comes into the realm of health would be uh, a, a language uh, um, which is, I would say, is harming. So it'd be the idea of damage or stigma. Uh, moralism is often there. We saw it during the AIDS epidemic in the, the, the 1980s. Um, compared to that, you would have something which is much more progressive, a moral commitment to reform structures and services to improve prevention and treatment. I think it's easy without a thinker like Bella to think about the, the moral sphere as being entangled, but he does allow us to think about moralism on the one hand as being distinct from a moral commitment to improve or, or, or reform. That comes out of his notion of social justice, but he's also um, very interested in citizenship, the way of activating or stimulating um, involvement in community decisions, whether it's parts of, whether it's in terms of public debate or whether it's in terms of being part of um, 
governing structures to think about long-term planning, um, whether it's in terms of volunteering in a community health centre. Um, the, the, the language of agency is important for, for Bella. And it's very important, I think, when we think about health crisis, which if we read it from a distance, seems to happen to a community. The community seems to be the, the, the passive victim of a force or set of forces beyond their control. And while health citizenship doesn't necessarily prevent a crisis happening in the future, I think it can make a community more resilient, more aware of itself, um, and also what exists beyond itself. Um, so if we think about the World Health Organization's mantra that health is a right, not a privilege. You've heard, heard it with Bernie Sanders and others recently. Um, I think it's important not to forget that, but the danger is in the US, perhaps more so than the UK, um, that the, the economics of healthcare, uh, particularly around insurance, dominates so much of the discussion that questions around what binds a community and what values we attach to um, health as a as a right sometimes gets occluded or, or forgotten, and I think Bella can bring us and remind us of those, I suppose, higher notions of what health is. It's about dignity, it's about respect, it's about self care, but also care of others as well. Can you say a bit more about pro government and anti government histories of public health or concepts of public health and how? you managed to keep these sort of um, two points of view in perspective. Bella, I think, helps helps with that. Sure. Well, Bella talks about what he calls the middle range, uh, which he describes as between the local and the global. I think on first glance, that seems to suggest that it's the national or the federal level that you know, is, the, is the answer to making sure that healthcare is balanced and while while I mean balanced on on the one hand it's about uh, a system a healthcare system that is about organization and provision and on the other hand um, health is a public good um, sometimes uh, the federal government can get it right um, would point to at least the first couple of years of the Lyndon Johnson administration in the the mid-60s which were which was um, geared to, to thinking about health as a public good and Medicare and Medicaid, the, the major legislation that was passed during that time is, is an example of that. Um, but as I've mentioned already, in terms of um, being able to have foresight or to think about the structures and conditions that could be improved and might, may ameliorate, ameliorate a, a crisis or prevent it from happening, more often than not, those, those things aren't heeded, which is why we end up with this crisis cycle that the book, book portrays. But what Bella allows us to do is to think, I think, beyond polarities. Um, and in the book, um, in the introduction and, and at various points during it, I refer to um, the notion of sympathetic states, the idea that the government um, is the provider, whether it's in terms of wealth, welfare or health care, is expected to prov- provide for its citizens on, on large. And we see, we see an example of this in um, the FDR's New Deal commitments in the 1930s to 
particularly welfare, perhaps welfare more than healthcare, although he did have ambitions uh, beyond what was achieved during the 1930s, as did Truman and Johnson and Clinton and Obama beyond that in terms of thinking about um, government's commitment or what, what kind of commitment the government should have for protecting the health of its citizens. On the other hand, you have, um, and I use the thought of Paul Farmer in this respect, the notion that uh, through systems of governmentality or surveillance, uh, the federal government isn't that bothered about the health of its citizens. It's more about structures that keep um, individuals and communities in place. I suppose as a graduate student, that notion of critiquing power and institutions was very strong um, in the 1990s, um, mid-1990s when I was doing my PhD, um, the thought of Foucault particularly, um, but also Derrida and others are about trying to critique and un undermine the, uh, the power structures of, of authority and institutions. And there's tons of histories, I think, that, that do that. Um, and I think Bella allowed me to think about issues of power and uh, structural violence, but without moving into a direction that, that's overly polemical. That's not to say that I just want to find a, a middle ground full of compromise, but institutions are important to Bella, and they're also important actually essential for thinking about healthcare delivery, what it means to have a community that's well served by uh, healthcare facilities. We can't do without institutions. So I think moving too far into an anti-government um, perspective would be to, you know, we, we may say it provides a, cl uh, a clean sweep, but at the same time, it demolishes a lot of um, of. of progressive legislation that's led to um, uh, a system which at times is adequate, other times um, shows cracks and um, lacks the kind of um, stability one would, one would hope to have. So that middle ground is really important. Uh, it does help me thread the needle uh, between those two polar views of both the role of government when it comes to national health care, um, but also the ideology behind those, those two um, positions. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, the book is divided. The book is divided into two parts. 
Um, one is called geographies of vulnerability and the other is called states of vulnerability. Um, and you really do do a, a wonderful job of talking about how institutions both can both uh, create vulnerabilities, um, but can also sort of buffer, provide a buffer or supports um, against them as, you know, to, to help um, um to help people who might be in vulnerable positions. Can you tell us a little bit about what are these two types of vulnerability, the geographies of vulnerability and the states of vulnerability, and how are they created? Sure. Well, I was very interested in place, and I talked uh, uh, earlier in the discussion about the importance of of the archive. Um, But I also tried to do some field trips as well to give... um, the, the case studies, um, real definite contours. For example, I, I spent some time on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, which uh, informs the third case study in, in the second chapter on poverty that looks at um, issues around American Indian health in, uh, in, in the late 1990s. And I also did some work in Alaska as well, thinking about the impact of the Exxon Valdez uh, spillage um, in the 1980s on both um, human but also animal communities as well there. So I did try and think about the importance of place in this book, perhaps more so than uh, anything I've ri- written before. And that informs the first half of the book, where um, which is deeply rooted in, in geography and locality. Um, and it's in out of the way, one might say, although that would be demeaning out of the way places for at least Congress um, that um, that crises often arise. Um, there is this discourse called the third worlding discourse, which uh, which we could apply to um, um, a hurricane like Hurricane Maria, where in, in Puerto Rico, the Trump administration really were forced or even goaded into um, acting uh, responsibly in the face of a of a major crisis, and I think that is sometimes um, plays out in 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 more banal or benign ways in Congress. You know that a crisis is over there and not not in your face, and therefore um, government doesn't have to uh, respond as quickly or as proactively as it might. It, it's interesting too that. Um, uh, that Calvin Coolidge in the 1920s, I look at the Mississippi flood um, in the late 1920s, and Coolidge deliberately didn't want to offer immediate assistance to communities in the South because it would set a precedent that he and, and other presidents would have to live by, you know, that the first sign of a, of a crisis or health emergency, the federal government would be expected to, to step in. So instead he sent... Herbert Hoover, who worked with the Red Cross to offer aid and come up with a plan for for alleviating a major health crisis in in the South. So the the first part looks very closely at at geography and locality. The second part of the book tries to zoom out and think more about structures um, at national level, but also um, at state level as well, in terms of thinking about structures that um, both frame um, crises and sometimes when they um, they are shaky or um, often um, 
don't live up to the um, the ideals that one might expect of, of of health institutions are the reasons why uh, vulnerabilities arise. So I'm particularly interested throughout on uh, communities that are underserved in terms of health services, whether those are communities of colour or in rural places or poor urban areas uh, or those living near toxic waste. And I've got a couple of case studies on that uh, in, in the book. Um, I think what crises do is they often reveal uh, structures of inequality and exclusion that are sometimes hiding in plain sight, that they're all around us. Um, but the health crisis, as we've seen with COVID, in terms of, um, in terms of prevalence, um, in terms of hospitalizations and comorbidities, often hide in plain sight, but often are brought to um, the forefront in the face, face of a crisis. The theme of vulnerability as well, I think, uh, I've talked about this a little earlier in, in the conversation, allows me to think about um, something that's both material and existential, that's to say vulnerabilities in systems and in places, but also vulnerability as what I call a psychosociological predisposition towards stress and debility. Uh, that's to say that it's, it's a psychological state or an existential state as much as a material one. However, the, the last point on this, I, I tried to not use the language of fragility um, because I think that undermines the idea that communities and individuals can be resilient and resourceful in the face of hardships. Uh, so vulnerability, I think, doesn't have the same kind of negative valence as uh, a term like fragility, which is often used to, to talk about the environment. But I think there's a danger of using it uh, in terms of describing or um, encircling um, a, a community. It, it, it robs agency rather than recognises there's a, a problem, but also reserves the right for a community to come to a sense of its own um, sense of crisis rather than having it imposed upon them. I think the book does a really good job of that in, in terms of it, although it is, uh, you, you cover a series of, of crises, it doesn't seem, it does not read like a march of tragedy, just sort of one horrible, tragic thing after another. There's a lot of richness and, and complexity in the case studies that you choose. Um, we don't have time to talk about all six of, of the, the crisis concepts, but I thought maybe we could give listeners kind of a sample and talk about one from the first half of the book and one from the second half of the book. Um, and, and so for the first one, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about natural disasters and how natural disasters become public health crises. Uh, of course. Um, so I, I've referred to the first chapter, um, which I call Disaster, but looks at the southern floods, uh, looks at three southern floods earlier in the conversation. The floods are the Great Mississippi Flood of the late 1920s, uh, the Buffalo Creek Flood in, in um, West Virginia towards the, the Kentucky border in 1972, and uh, Hurricane Katrina in, in 2005. I, I do take the liberty in the, the coda of, of this chapter to think about the um, 
the resonances of Katrina, but also thinking about the idea of the Southern Flood through Hurricane Harvey and, and Hurricane Maria as well. And I've, again, given you some sense there of, uh, of, of issues around um, the government being slow, the federal government being slow to, to respond to um, what start off as local or regional crises before they become seen as national ones. Um, of course, natural disasters are rarely just natural. That's to say that there's usually a human hand or uh, a human institution that has laid the ground for that uh, particular occurrence to happen. Uh, you could see it in the from the late 19th century, I think, in the way that the Mississippi was divided up into Mississippi River was divided up into private interests rather than thinking about it as an ecology, something that uh, where one element affects the other. Um, and obviously you can see it um, resonate through to Hurricane uh, Katrina and the devastation of that in terms of um, the lack of uh, seawall defences um, around the, um, the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, so I'm interested in the way that a natural disaster is shaped by human hands, um, which um, is one of the, the strong themes in, in the first part of, of the uh, the first chapter of the book. Um, I should also say that often the language of crisis is um, a broad um, one. That's to say that the um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, if we're thinking domestically, or the World Health Organization, if we're thinking globally, would call a public health emergency, uh, which allows them to operationalize uh, and coordinate activities and direct resources. So emergency tends to be a more operational um, term than crisis, which I've talked already has a more existential valence, uh, which takes us into the realm of experience, uh, but also into the realm of drama as well. And it's the way in which I think crisis is both constructed and inflamed in the media uh, that interests me. Um, in terms of um, these three floods, um, they, I suppose they offer case studies in terms of scale. Uh, Mississippi flood affected states uh, from Illinois down to, to Louisiana, the Buffalo Creek flood, a micro community, if you like, um, um, Hurricane Katrina, uh, both a city, New Orleans, but along the, the the Gulf Coast. So they they had effects on different scales of community. And scale is an important theme in, in, in the book. Um, I talk uh, in the introduction about uh, derangements of scale, which is a term that Timothy Clark uh, developed, um, and the way in which sometimes with a crisis is often hard to determine what the right scale is. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, often emotions are heightened or lives are on the line um, or the spectacle of the flood can take us into a realm where it's hard to actually perceive what's going on. Hurricane Katrina was a clear sense of this, particularly as uh, it was hard for some media outlets to get into the city and also because there was so much rumour and speculation in terms of what was going on. Um, so I think um, I start there. I start with chapter one with um, 
with 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 natural disasters. Although I'd reframe that and say that disasters that um, have a human hand behind them, uh, but also brings us into um, view with these issues around scale and and how important it is to try and um, think carefully about what scale is appropriate when we're uh, both framing a crisis but also dealing with one. For the second half of the book, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the chapter that is titled Virus, because that one seems, um, well, particularly relevant to the world we're living in today. Um, and you cover uh, three different viruses, um, influenza, polio, and HIV and AIDS. Um, tell us a little bit about what you conclude about um, how viruses relate to states of vulnerability. Sure. Um, one thing I, I, I did want to mention is, and I did early on, the, the role of, of writing and cultural expression. And I think that's an important part, both of the flood chapter, but also uh, the virus chapter as well. And, and there are three viruses that um, obviously are well known and documented widely in terms of um, both the historical record and, and different types of interpretation of them. So there was a rich body of literature to draw on uh, with influenza, polio, and HIV AIDS. Um, and, and sometimes that's on, a, on a, a reflective level as well. So with the with this chapter, uh, which is one of the first I, I wrote for the book, I, I mentioned the flood chapter is the first of the book, but I think the virus chapter was the first one I wrote. Um, it, it allowed me to zoom in on particular phases of, um, of, of, of those viruses. Obviously, the great influenza epidemic was, was nine, uh, 1918-19, although there were various, um, there were various uh, arguments about when it started and also when it ended. Um, there was a, um, a, a widespread uh, contraction of post-encephalitis uh, in the 1920s, and the, the, there's still speculation about whether that's the tail end of the influenza epidemic or whether it was a, a, a discrete uh, phenomenon um, with polio, which starts or arises in, in the 19th century, I kind of look at the, the way in which um, polio was episodic from, certainly from the 1910s through to uh, the development of the, of the, the polio uh, vaccine in, in the early 1950s. But I'm particularly interested in that moment in the 50s as well, which um, I think resonates with today because um, there were a number of, um, vaccine trials, but also the rollout of the vaccine where the government made some missteps um, or, and, in fact, missteps that could have been taken perhaps a bit more seriously in the last um, 12 to 15 months when thinking about what, um, what kind of structures and institutions need to be involved, uh, in, particularly in, in vaccine rollouts. With HIV-AIDS, I focus in probably the most um, obvious period during the Reagan and George W. Bush years when um, HIV-AIDS had so much stigma attached to it and so little understanding um, by the federal government. So I I look at particular slices of the crisis phase or uh, experience as a whole, but I also try and give a sense of the long durée of those uh, 
crises as well. And of course, with HIV AIDS, we could say the crisis continues, particularly uh, in, in, in some um, African, African countries. The other thing to say, I think, particularly um, because the book starts in the 1910s, that the influenza epidemic, um, although it wasn't the only crisis that the Woodrow Wilson administration was trying to face, I mentioned uh, the illicit spread of opiates in the 1910s, inner city poverty would be another, uh, venereal disease and its spread in the armed forces. There were a number of crises that the Wilson administration was forced to tackle uh, with with uneven results. Um, But I think that the fact that there were a number of exhibitions and remembrances of the great influenza epidemic in in 2018, CDC had an exhibition which uh, had some amazing photographs that I hadn't seen before of of both mask wearing, but also uh, treatment of, um, of, of, of influenza patients. Um, and I often, you know, the, the Vietnam War is often seen as being the first media war. Well, I didn't really think about the great influenza epidemic as probably being the first media epidemic in terms of that range of photographs. Uh, the cover of the book has a, a photograph that circulated in the media in the spring of last year. Uh, it was a recently found photograph by an Oakland amateur photographer, Raymond Coyne, uh, and it depicts a group um, of Marion County Californians wearing masks in November 1918. Um, it's never been published uh, until recently, that is. Um, but it does resonate, obviously, with the politics of mask wearing, which has become increasingly tense or uh, perhaps less so yeah. right now, although that's arguable, but certainly over the last um, the last uh, eight to nine months. So there are resonances there. When I first drafted the chapter, I didn't think about mask wearing in a politicised way, but clearly it became so in the light of um, the um, uneven um, federal messaging around mask wearing in response to COVID. And if you look at the cover, it doesn't obviously look like a historical photograph. You kind of, you have to stop and take a closer look and to try to pinpoint the periodization too, I would say. Um, sure. If I could add, just add one other thing. I I, and, um, I did want to mention this uh, because the book is about government response at a um at an institutional level, but I am interested in leadership. And I think the COVID crisis gave me a sense of someone like Anthony Fauci, who, when I first drafted the HIV, HIV AIDS section, wasn't featured in, in that at all. But looking back at his role, uh, both in terms of engaging with HIV AIDS activists uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, but also his friendship with Reagan's Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, who did change the um, the tone of uh, the federal response to AIDS um, by switching away from questions around moralism and family values to thinking about HIV as a public threat. So Fauci's role um, during that time, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was forgotten or occluded, but I think his more prominent role during the current 
uh, crisis allowed me to reflect back on a kind of ethically committed but also scientifically hyper-aware role that he had uh, in, in that really pivotal moment for for shifting the dial on the public rhetoric around HIV AIDS. Well, Martin, we are almost out of time, but I want to ask one more question before our, we get to our sort of traditional final question. Um, and that is the, the book has something called CODA 2020. So it has a conclusion and then it has a, another little section at the end that sort of um, brings us all the way up to the present and, and possibly even the future. Um, and in the CODA, the book offers the possibility that we might build, and this is quote, an active public health cult- culture that can be both responsive and reflective. Can you say more about that? What would what would a culture like that look like and how would we go about building it? Sure. Well, so I've talked about health citizenship uh, through my reading of, of Robert Bella. Um, I've talked about involvement in civic affairs, whether it's public debates or governance or uh, volunteering. But I think there are other things as well. So if we think about culturally congruent health, whether it's thinking about the language in which um, public health education and information is 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 promulgated, um, or we think about the uh, the importance of traditional healing practices or alternative health in dialogue with um, the modern bureaucratic health system in the U.S. Um, so health citizenship would be engagement, but it also would be um, pushing at the the boundaries of what currently exists to try and find a way of either improving or looking looking beyond that. Um, another way of framing this would be to think about public health as a culture rather than a system, uh, and that culture would be a shared resource for a community uh, rather than, as I mentioned earlier, systems which I think in a country so, um, so vast as the US are always going to be under strain always uh, vulnerable to shifts in government policy or uh, to the the purse strings in Congress. Um, The the third thing, I think, is the the notion of what Bella calls a politics of imagination. I think this is where cultural reflection, uh, whether it's in literature or film or journalism or music, comes into the book that helps us uh, to work through the experience of a health crisis, uh, sometimes during the crisis itself and other times in the rearview mirror. Um, so that's the reflection, I think. I think it's not just about um, citizenship in a, um, in a rights-based way. That's, that's crucially important. But I think there's a reflective side to, uh, to it that can be activated as well. I love this idea of a, a public health culture and one that we can, we both, you know, we participate in and, and we can help shape. Um, uh, that I, I have taken up too much of your time. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to bring us now to our traditional final question, which is, okay, so this is book 14. What is book 15? What are you working on next? Uh, so I have two things. One, which um, uh, is a big edited volume called Politics of American Health, which has um, around 40 largely U.S. actually con- contributors, uh, which looks at topics of community and children's health uh, through to questions of rights and environmental justice. 
Uh, that will be out next year with um, Edinburgh University Press. And then the, the third of the trilogy I'm working on for Rutgers, um, which um, goes back to 1990 to think about uh, the development of biotechnology um, during what was called the decade of the brain, but also the biotech acceleration that's happened since the 1990s. The idea is to, to complete that trilogy looking at mental health and the way in which uh, biotech can um, has both reframed um, ideas around uh, mental health and illness, um, largely by thinking about the relationship between, I suppose, the material and the immaterial, again, the relationship between um, brain and um, consciousness would be, be, be one example. Um, but also, I, I, it's given me chance, I think history's caught up with me. If I'd written this project <laughs> up uh, a few years ago, I think it would be about a biotech future that's about not infinite expansion, but about one that's increasingly reliant on technology. Whereas I think both um, the COVID experience, but also the colliding crises that President Biden has spoken about shows that technology isn't always the answer to, um, to, to issues, particularly when it comes to human behavior and um, and I think as I'm as I'm working through this, again, I'll try and thread the needle, I think, between technology seen as a, um, either as a, a curse or, or, or a blessing. And I think what's happened, although it's horribly tragic and no one would ever have wanted it, does provide us with, a, I suppose, a new horizon for thinking about the role of technology within uh, the sphere of, of health. That's a good point. So your your history has uh, um, sort of the way that the history would be written has changed just in the past couple of years um, um, based on our current circumstances. I, I think that's right, although um, I think there's always a danger with contemporary history of getting it wrong. Um, I mean, if I can just be self-reflective on American health crises, um, I think there's a couple of things. You know, I, I wrote the code in October. Um, if I could write it now. It would strike a slightly different tone, um, particularly um, issues around leadership, but also what's happened in terms of uh, racial justice. I think that would be a, a stronger theme uh, if if I was to write it now. So I think there's always a danger, you know, of thinking um, you're putting a final word on something, and and then five minutes later, the horizon shifts again. So. Um, it's it will take me a little while to, to to finish this project, and it is exciting dealing with the contemporary moment, but also um, quite daunting as well. Well, they both sound like wonderful projects, both the edited collection and the third in the trilogy. Um, Martin, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your work with our audience today. Thanks so much, Claire. I uh, really appreciated the opportunity to talk with you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.